We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we talk about pop culture from a Jewish perspective and where we talk about Judaism through the lens of pop culture. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf, and I'm joined as always by my friend and fellow pop culture fanboy. Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. I am your Anna to your Elsa. Or, or you're my Anna to my Elsa. But, oh, I love that. I was gonna, I, I was gonna say that uh, that that I'm your Sven to your Kristoff. Uh, all right, I like that. Kind of like Sven. I've been told and also smelled too. Um, okay, so we are of course today going to be talking about, as you might have guessed, we're going to be talking about Frozen Two, uh, the uh, new Disney animated sequel that uh, came out over. Thanksgiving weekend, uh, and we're going to uh, uh, talk about it from all angles. Why don't we jump right into it uh, with a little background and a little summary? Uh, Jesse, will you tell us a little bit about Frozen 2? Sure. Full disclosure, there was Frozen mania, Frozen fever in my home over the past couple of weeks. We were uh, counting down the days until the new movie came out and, of course, had to see its opening weekend. Uh, my oldest daughter was also uh, in a local uh, production at the local Y of Frozen Junior, the musical. So between the two, between singing the songs nonstop from Frozen, the musical, and from hunkering down so excited to see Frozen 2, we've been uh, a little obsessed with Arendelle lately. Um, Frozen 2 really begins with a flashback where King Agnar, if you remember at the very beginning of Frozen 1, the king and the queen die, they get lost at sea, and that's what leads Elsa to eventually become queen. Um, the king tells a story to Elsa and Anna's young children about how his father, their grandfather, established a treaty with the neighboring indigenous tribe of the uh, the North Oldger tribe um, and builds a dam in their homeland to protect the enchanted forests. But what we see next is that a fight occurs, a fight in, ensues, and that that king dies, leading to their father, Agnar, to become king. And what happens is these elemental spirits, the uh, gods of the earth, the earth spirit and the fire spirit and the water spirit and the air spirit of the forest um, disappear and become consumed by this mist. And this mist traps everybody in the enchanted forest. Um, Agnar escapes, um, but we don't know what happens to everybody else. Then years after Frozen takes place, after Elsa's coronation, after she freezes everyone, but then unfreezes, gets rid of this eternal winter, um, they're celebrating autumn this time, they're celebrating fall, uh, and she keeps hearing this voice, this voice is calling out to her, and she has to figure out what that voice is. She follows it and ends up awakening these spirits of earth, fire, water, and air, 
Um, and she, along with Anna and Olaf and Kristoff and Sven, they head north uh, and they end up going to this enchanted forest. And when they're in the enchanted forest, they end up seeing these these sculptures. And in the sculptures, they realize they see their father's past and they see their mother's past and they see actually their grandfather's past. First, they see the, this big reveal that their mother, Queen Eduna, was actually a part of the indigenous North Oldger tribe. And she was the one that saved their father's life. Uh, he was from Arendelle. She was from North Oldra. They fall in love and return uh, to Arendelle to serve and to rule the people. This is not that much of a spoiler alert if you've actually seen Frozen the musical because there's a big reveal there in the dialogue that the mother was actually of uh, a North Aldrin. But that's for another time. Um, they end up heading north uh, to really go to what their parents were searching for all along. Their parents got lost at sea because... They were searching for a mystical river that they believed would reveal why Elsa had these magic powers, how they could help her, um, contain explanations of their past. Elsa ends up going there. Um, she There's a really cool scene where she freezes the tides and climbs above them. There's a, a water spirit, which is this like water horse that she ends up riding. Um, and when she's there, she discovers this voice that's calling to her um, and that she was really gifted with these powers because of her mother's selfless act saving their father. Uh, and that her powers are actually the fifth spirit, this missing elemental spirit um, that was not part of the enchanted force that she had taken with her. She also learns that uh, building this dam was really not to help the indigenous people of the Enchanted Forest, but it was actually her grandfather's uh, plan to steal their resources. Um, and he actually was the one who started war with the tribe. They did not attack him. And it was a real shock to them, although the foreshadowing was pretty clear. You knew what was about to happen as a viewer, that he was going to end up being the bad guy. He sort of had that bad guy look to him. Uh, and she learns that he was the one who initiated the conflict that killed the leader of the North Holdren. Um, and then she lets Anna know this, but she ends up becoming frozen. Uh, Olaf ends up melting and fading away because he's dependent on Elsa's magic. And then Anna realizes that the only way to save Elsa and the only way to save the mystical forest is to destroy this dam. So she has these earth spirits, these giants, uh, like mountains of monsters. It kind of reminds me of like the guys from the never ending story. If you remember that she, she, she convinces them to chase after her, which ends up destroying the dam. The Elsa comes back to life. Olaf comes back to life. The forest is saved, but by destroying the dam, Arendelle is about to be flooded. And in this intense scene at the end, Elsa's racing the flooding waters on her water horse to get to Arendelle first and freezes the water before it destroys her kingdom and saves the day, <clears throat> reunites with her sister, and ends up deciding 
that she is going to be the bridge between the two people, the people of her father and the people of her mother, those of Arendelle and those of North Holdra, and that she is going to stay to to protect the Enchanted Forest and to be the ruler of the North Holdrum people. And in the end, Anna becomes queen of Arendelle instead of Elsa. So that's a brief summary. Um, Mike, I know your answer already, but tell me, what did you think of the movie? <sighs> I found myself, as you were giving that very masterful summary of the movie, I found myself just getting glassy-eyed again. And what kept playing in my head is Kristen Wiig's SNL character, Aunt Linda, who always reviews movies and just you know gives every movie a, oh, brother. <laughs> that's, how I felt about, that's how I felt about this movie. I also had Frozen Fever in my household in uh, my fro- the original Frozen. Um, might as well have been on loop in our household uh, for you know the the few years after it was released, I could quote the movie backwards and forwards. Um, and uh, in disclosure, I I loved the original Frozen from the first from the first time I saw it. I wasn't one of those people who like eventually came around to it when it was saturated in the culture. When it was saturated in the culture, I uh, I, I liked it from the beginning. I thought it was a, a great story. I thought it was a great. Um, uh, subversion of some of the classic Disney tropes. I uh, I think uh, Kristen Bell is a national treasure. Um, Adina Menzel. I mean, how can you not love her? Uh, Josh Gad was hilarious as well. I just thought it was it fired in all cylinders, and it, and it was great. Um, and and this movie, I just struggled to get through. I still, Jesse, you just recounted the entire plot to me. I saw the movie. I like read to prepare for this podcast uh, recording. <laughs> I still could not tell you what the plot of this movie was. I couldn't tell you what happened. I also couldn't really care. Um, um, you know, all the characters are still very lovely characters. They're, they're you know, I, I they're beloved. Um, I thought you know Josh Gad had some, or you know, the Olaf character had some great and funny lines. Um, Adina Menzel is is as amazing as always. Kristen Bell, uh, but um, uh, there was, and it certainly had its charms and its and its its good parts. You know, the, first of all, the animation was gorgeous. Um, uh, some of the music was good, but certainly not memorable on the level of the original movie. Um, and um, uh, and, uh, and 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 it certainly, you know, the the. Uh, the um, power ballad that uh, Christoph sings um, to express his uh, sadness and frustration that he's not able to properly uh, propose to Anna was lost in the woods. Yeah, lost in the woods was was in my view laugh out loud funny. Um, uh, so that was great. So it's like you know, an it awesome had, '80s music video. Right. It was so good. And and as somebody who you know grew up uh, with. Um, uh, with Ryan, with uh, Brian Adams, um, uh, um, from uh, from uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Um, look into my eyes, you oh, will uh, see. All, f- all for one and all for love. <laughs> yes, that's it. So um, uh, you know, so it was like that kind of thing. And so I grew up with that stuff, and it was all a major presence in my house. Anyway, so. 
the, there, it, the movie was certainly not without its charms, not without its highlights. Uh, but overall, to me, it uh, it 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 just um, it just didn't work. Which should tell you, dear listener, how much I love you uh, and how much I love uh, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Because here I am uh, on the podcast talking about Frozen Two. Did not love it personally, but for you, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna dive into it. We're gonna talk Torah about it, and it's going to be as magical as a, a, a snowman created by ice magic. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this. Um, I uh, have a very different opinion than Mike. I love the movie. Can I, I just say I... something really quick, Jesse, before we get your hot take? I would say, sure. if you want, listener, if you want to return the favor of my love, uh, subscribe <laughs> to the podcast. Rate us on your uh, podcast platform. Uh, share us with your friends. Let people know uh, how great this is. And uh, and how much we we love and appreciate you. I already subscribed to our podcast, so <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, I, I have a we're, the, we're the two. <laughs> I have a very different view than you, Mike. Um, I loved it. Um, I say that no. I will also I will also say my kids loved it like better than the original. I don't so, understand them. Um, this is what it means to be a parent, I suppose. But anyway, go ahead. I say that knowing how difficult it is to make a successful sequel, right? The the old joke was Empire Strikes Back is the only sequel ever that is better than the original. Um, that's so Judgment difficult Day. To, to make a successful sequel. Um, and Frozen had, like all these Disney animated films had, Frozen had the fairy tale Right, it was based on the Hans Christian Andersen Snow Queen, so it had a story to work with already. They were creating this brand new story. That being said, if you really look back and watch Frozen, I love Frozen. I love the music of Frozen. I think it's funny. I think it's creative. I think it's uh, was really groundbreaking for Disney. The story is kind of so-so, right? This queen has these powers, she hides them, and then everybody sees the powers, they're scared, she runs, they get her to come back, she saves the day. It's a pretty basic story. Now, this story is more complicated and complex in Frozen 2. I get it, what you're saying, Mike, it may be too complex that you're not really sure what is going on. Uh, I think a lot of things are going on. I think, one, it's an empowerment story. It's reminding us of not just Elsa's power, but Anna's power, that Anna doesn't need to have magic powers like Elsa in order to save the day, in order to be queen, in order to be the ruler of Arendelle. Uh, it's also a reminder of the dangers of tribalism and division. I think it's really telling uh, us a lesson about the society we live in when we build walls and build barriers to divide people who are different. You end up with these giant fogs of mist that prevent you from seeing the outside world and seeing the beauty of the outside worlds. I think even the movie was very critical of the first movie. When Olaf was giving a review of what happened in the first movie, there's this great scene at the, the climax when Elsa finally made it into this mythical river and she sees herself... Uh, singing Let It Go, 
in a way that Disney was actually criticized for, that they were criticized that they made Elsa too sexy in this role. She like shoes her away and is embarrassed and cringing about that look. I thought it was very clever and very well done. As for the music, I thought the music was great. There were a lot more songs in this film than there were in the original Frozen. You know, you have Some Things Never Change, right? That's a fine song. But Into the Unknown, I think, is a great song. Show Yourself, this incredible uh, ballad by Dina Menzel. It sounded like I was listening to her on the original cast recording of Wicked, like an act one finale. It was so good. And then, of course, right, Jonathan Groff, Kristoff singing Lost in the Woods uh, was incredible. I thought the music was catchy. I think the more we end up listening to it in the car, because that's what my kids want to listen to in the car, it becomes more of an earworm. I think that's why the songs from Frozen are earworms, because my kids made me listen to that in the car for years. This will eventually be as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I also thought Show Yourself was a great song, and, um, and, and I thought it was telling that, you know, clearly the filmmakers and Disney, you know, really, really wanted... Uh, into the unknown to be the new let it go um and to me it just didn't i mean it was it was fine i mean they what you gotta give them credit they swung for the fences on it um uh but it was but it was clear what they were going for there and it just it just to me was not it i mean first of all um it didn't have the emotional resonance in the movie the way uh let it go did um you know i i recognize i i kind of speak from uh, uh male privilege here um, but I didn't read um, Elsa's, you know, little shimmy uh, uh, during Let It Go um, as um, as trying to overly sexualize her. I thought the whole um, the whole the whole idea of Let It Go was 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 her kind of owning her power and uh, and 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 refusing to uh, uh, care about the expectations that society was putting on her. And I thought she was trying to show that, you know, was trying to show that in, in uh, visually. Um, and you know, so anyway, it, it, that that worked for me. And, and into the unknown, um, I, I thought that it, there was not an emotional hook to it. It was early in the movie. Um, I, I didn't really. I mean, there, there was a lot of emotion in the song, um, but it wasn't. It felt unearned to me. Like it, it didn't. It, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't brought about by the story in the same way. So it just, uh, it, it just didn't land in the same way for me. Sure, um, it wasn't a climax like Let It Go was. I would argue that Show Yourself was that climax. Yes, like that. I, agree, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, and, and, and there's, you know, there was a line in Show Yourself that I really loved. It was something like, um, you are the one you've been waiting for, uh, which, uh, which I thought as a theme for the movie, was a powerful theme and a, and a powerful message, right? If you uh, uh, think about uh, in, in Jewish tradition, you know, we have uh, the, the teaching right? you're in a place where there's no human beings, uh, uh, be a person or strive to be a person, right? That, uh, that, that we can't necessarily wait around for other people to do the right thing, um, that we are called to take the initiative and take the steps uh, to do the right thing, where right? you have the character of Nachshon ben Aminadav, uh, the the uh, chief of uh, the tribe of Judah, who, according to Midrash, uh, jumps into the Sea of Reeds uh, in that pivotal story in Exodus, 
um, uh, when everybody is standing at the banks of the scene, not knowing what to do, he he takes he takes the leap. Right, you're the one that you've been waiting for. Um, so I think that that's very present within Jewish tradition too. And I think it's a, a really powerful uh, lesson and message to share with kids. And I and I honestly think that both the original Frozen and this one um, does a lot of of really of good that um, uh, that that is that sort of retcons the entire. Uh, Disney experience, Disney history up to this point, right? That the love story in in both Frozen's is really the love story between um, these two sisters, uh, which is really powerful, um, and uh, you know, and, and kind of subverts the classic trope that you know that really you know the the, the princess is just waiting around for her prince to come, um, tearing down um, the patriarchy. Yeah, um, and so I think that that's that's amazing, and 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 it was powerful then, and it's powerful now. Um, I. You know, I, I, and I think that the, the notion of of, of Elsa um, coming to uh, uh, own her power uh, and uh, and and embrace who she really is, which uh, is present in the first movie and and in this movie, uh, is 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 a really powerful and extraordinary theme. And and again, you know, I think a very a, a very Jewish theme. Um, I wish that uh, that the filmmakers and the Disney Corporation would would just let her be. Um, uh, an out gay woman already, uh, but uh, that's you know that's uh, I'll I'll file my complaint with the complaint department on that. Hmm. You know, Mike, I'm really interested with uh, these elemental spirits: the earth, fire, water, air. Besides being very cool, you know, the tornadoes, the um, fire, being this fiery chameleon, which apparently has some sort of uh, meaning in some indigenous cultures or the uh, water spirits being this water horse. Um, I'm really interested in their relationship with the lands, especially at this moment in, in time. It was just announced that Greta Thornburg was named Time's Person of the Year. Right. And I'm really interested in what this says about our relationship with the land, our relationship with the earth, and what we're supposed to do to take care of the earth, because that's really what I think this message was. The king, Elsa and Anna's grandfather, claimed he was protecting the earth and protecting its resources by building this dam, but he was actually harming the earth and limiting its resources as a result. So much of what we do, we think we're doing it for the good of the earth, when the side effects is that we're actually harming it. I think back to, right, even in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are given Eden, God blesses them, tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, and fill up the land, and then says, shuha, right, you subdue the lands. You have dominion over the fish and the birds and all the mammals. Sforno says, who's a 16th century Italian rabbi, says shuha is not subdue the land, meaning to conquer the land with this muscular power or strength. But it means that we have this superior intellect. We are, have this superior intellect compared to other mammals, compared to other animals, plants. He understands this to mean that we use our intelligence to protect the earth and protect its elements. And it's only that intelligence and our courage that will ultimately save it. Sometimes we use our intelligence to hijack the earth and its resources. And that's sort of where we're at this 
crossroads right now with climate change. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with all of that. I think that, I, you know, I, I thought that climate change was really a subtext of the first movie, too, in, in a lot of ways, right? That uh, I mean, there, there literally was a climate change uh, in that movie, of course, not global warming, but cooling in that sense. But um, a, a recognition that, um, uh, that, that, that we have uh, the capacity to, uh, to, to profoundly influence um, our, our environment for, for good or ill. And I think that that was present in this one, too, in a different way, like you're describing. But I also think that, that it showed the relationship much more clearly in this one between um, environmental exploitation and degradation um, and, um, and, and, uh, human exploitation degradation, right? That, that the, um, uh, King Agnar in trying to dominate, uh, the, um, the, the natural resources of, uh, North Uldra, um, was also, uh, trying to essentially conquer and plunder, uh, the, the people. Like Greta Thunberg, um, I think just today, you know, speaking into international climate summit, um, when she got the news about uh, the, the being time person of the year, you know, and, and she made very clear that among the reasons, right, it's not only because um, it is uh, um, destroying the, the, um, uh, the, the environment, the planet, uh, but also because in doing that, people are dying. And more importantly, you know, it is, um, uh, it, 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 it reflects a, um, a sense of um, supremacy, right? Of, of of Western supremacy over over Eastern peoples, right? Of white supremacy over um, over non-white peoples, right? That that you know, white, uh, predominantly white, predominantly Christian um, uh, countries um, are are the are the largest contributors to uh, global carbon emissions, um, the greatest polluters, um, and disproportionately. Uh, the people who suffer from climate change um, are people far on the other side of the world in poor countries uh, in the global south, uh, people of color, uh, uh, often non-Christians. So I, I think that that's an important part of the conversation. Um, uh, I was I, I was on a panel uh, last spring with the uh, director of the local science museum here in Richmond, the uh, Virginia Science Museum, uh, and he's a climate scientist. And I said to him, you know, what is the point at which um, you know, uh, global climate change is, is really um, uh, irreparable and the world becomes uh, inhospitable to human life. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, that depends on what human you are, right? Is like if you, if, you know, if you live uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, if you live in another place in the global south, like climate change is already here. I mean, climate change is already here for everybody, but climate change is already here in a, in a really intense um, uh, a tangible way and deadly way um, that um, that that you know it, the average temperature during the summer here in Richmond might be a little hotter, but I have air conditioning. I I, I almost never feel it in a, in a very significant way, right? But um, but were I you know um, were at it were I at a different income level here in the United States, or were I in a different neighborhood here in the United States? And certainly, if I was someone uh, living in in the global South. Um, I would already be feeling it. I would already be displaced by it, and and maybe I would already have been killed by it. Um, and so, uh, so I think that that theme was really present in this movie too. That when we talk about um, the the plunder of the Earth's resources and the destruction of the planet, um, it's also a conversation 
about um, how we um, uh, devalue not only the natural world but also other human life when we don't um, when, when they're people that we that we uh, consider to be you know less worthy than us right if it impacted if climate change you know was impacting um, uh, 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 people you know in Washington DC in the same way that it impacts people in you know in um, in, in India um, then we would be reducing our carbon emissions to zero tomorrow. Well, I think it's also our the the main issue and at stake is do we only care about what is beneficial to us or do we care about what will help and save the entire planet, right? What is beneficial to all peoples uh, or furthermore, and I, I think uh, most important, what will save the planet for the future, right? Because that's the other thing. It's not just this doesn't affect us, but it affects other people in other parts of the world. But this doesn't affect us, but very well may have a real effect a generation from now, two generations from now. The planet that we are living on and the resources that we are consuming and using will look very different when my very young children are adults if we don't make changes. And that's real, right? That's, that yeah. is uh, the, the text from Tani, right? That is uh, the Tamidic the text from Tani 23a of the Babylonian Talmud of Honi the, the circle maker, where he, he sees the man, um, uh, where he's planting a carob tree and, he's, mm -hmm. and a man sees him and says, why are you planting this tree? How long does it take for the tree to bear fruits? And he says, 70 years. And the man scoffs and says, 70 years, you'll be dead in 70 years. And he gives the very uh, well-known response, a, a response that text that we often use in our own institutions to talk about the importance of looking out for the future and educating our children, that just as my ancestors planted for me, so too I will plan for my children. That we, we are at fault because we're only caring about the resources and how they benefit us. We're not looking out for what impact it will have on future generations and that's really why we're at this climate change uh, crossroads right and i think that that was present in the movie i mean right the the uh, the, the environmental decisions and the uh, imperial decisions of king agnar had um devastating consequences for his grandchildren Right. And so, you know, so I think that, that that's the parallel to, to our time. What are the what are the decisions that our grandparents made that are now negatively impacting us or positively impacting us? And what are the decisions that we make that are going to make, you know, uh, um, ha have an impact for good or for ill um, on our children and grandchildren and, and great grandchildren? Um, and that's and, and that's an important um, an important piece. Of this an important conversation. Um, the other thing that uh, that struck me about this, Jesse, can we uh, switch gears a little bit? Of course. Uh, is um, is this uh, voice that is calling to Elsa uh, and uh, and uh, and really is kind of the I guess MacGuffin of the movie, right? The thing that they're uh, seeking out and searching in the movie, and um, and it, and it reminded me of this Talmudic teaching uh, that says. Um, uh, in each and every each and every day, uh, a, a botkol, a divine voice, goes forth from Choreb, Mount Sinai, uh, saying, "Shuvu banim shovim, uh, return, uh, wayward children, or 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 repent, uh, wayward children." Um, and and I wonder what what did that um, uh, uh, aspect of the movie 
say to you um, or, or, or uh, hold out for you uh, in terms of uh, themes or, or, or um, insight that the movie offered? Well, my understanding that that voice that's called out to her, uh, that, and that's where she finally found that voice in this mythical river, uh, that was the voice of her mother who was calling out to her. But mm-hmm. I think that's just uh, uh, a, a whole separate idea of what that voice represents. The voice that calls out to her is really a way to signify that she, she is still searching to come to terms with her full self, with her true self. Uh, we see that initially in the first movie. That's what Let It Go is all about. You know, here I stand and here I stay. Right? That that she's embracing who she is and she's not going to hide who she is. And yet the movie, the second movie begins with her not being satisfied with who she is. And still searching that she feels like there's a part of herself that is still missing. Uh, So I think part of it is searching for that own voice within us. But if that voice is her mother's voice, then I think it also speaks volumes about our responsibility when we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. That um, just like Isaac re-dug the same wells that his father Abraham dug, that we walk in our families and our ancestors' footsteps, whether intentional or not, whether we realize it or not, even when we try to avoid it, that our ancestors set the path for us that we are on. We may be able to diverge and create our own path, but I think so much of this journey was about really coming to terms with who their parents were because that in some ways defines who they are. It it doesn't fully define who they are, but it really helps them shape for themselves, both Elsa and Anna, who, where they come from and who they want to be. I mean, their parents died when they were so young that they really didn't fully understand or appreciate who they were, right? It was this big reveal. They didn't even know that their mother was a uh, North Holdren, or maybe they knew and we, the viewer, didn't know. They certainly didn't know that their mother was the one that saved their father's life. What about you, Mike? I, I I I think that uh, I resonate with everything you're saying, and and what it um, what what you're saying reminds me of the story that uh, that uh, Rabbi Sharon Browse, my rabbi, the founding rabbi of, of Icar in Los Angeles, uh, teaches often. She uh, it's a it's a story that uh, comes from the Hasidic master uh, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, uh, the Kedushat Levi. Um, and here's how Rabbi Browse tells it. She says. Once there was a beloved king whose court musicians played beautiful music before him. The king loved the music and the musicians felt honored to be able to use their talent to bring him joy. Every day for many years, the musicians played enthusiastically and the king and the musicians developed a deep love for one another. But eventually, after years of dedicated service, all the musicians died. Their children were called into the king's court to take their parents' place. Out of loyalty to their parents, they began to appear every morning to perform. But unlike their parents, the children did not love the music. While they could play the basic tunes, they did not understand the hidden power of their instruments. And in their hearts, they believed that they had better things to do than spend time trying to please some king. Each day that they played, their resentment grew. And each day the king became more and more frustrated 
as much by their dismissive attitude as by their cacophony. After some time, for reasons nobody really understood, a few of the children developed a renewed interest in serving the king. They realized that playing beautiful music was the way to connect with him and bring him joy. But since they had abandoned serious practice for so long, their instruments were rusty and out of tune and their skill was embarrassingly inadequate. So these children set out to remember what their parents had known so well. They arrived early each morning and found a remote corner of the palace to practice together. They began to experiment with sound, rediscover harmony, and rededicate themselves to service spawned by love. In the evening, after the other musicians went home, they practiced more, trying desperately to make their instruments sing. The king witnessed their efforts and was deeply moved. Their music was different from their parents, but like them, it was driven by dedication and love. And for this reason, their efforts were received as a blessing. So what, what, uh, what, what Rabbi Braus um, uses a story to, to teach us how um, there is a kind of reawakening of, um, of, of spiritual appetite um, in um, the current generation of, 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 of Jews, American Jews, uh, uh, whose parents may have kind of, you know, been playing the music by rote, but not really been so invested in it, maybe had put their instruments down altogether. Um, and then all of a sudden these, you know, these uh, now, you know, third, fourth generation Americans um, are saying, you know, hey, you know, my, 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 my parents, my grandparents, whatever, you know, threw the tefillin overboard when they came to America. Um, but I'm curious about those tefillin, right? And I, and I wanna, and, and, I'm, and, I, and I, I feel like on some level, like this is my heritage. I was always taught that this is my heritage, but I know nothing about it. Um, and, I'm, and there's a piece of me that's, that's drawn to it, um, but uh, uh, because, it, because on some level, I feel it's a part of me, but I don't, you know, I don't, uh, uh, I was always taught that it was relatively meaningless, that, um, uh, that, that it wasn't compelling or interesting or, or serious. Um, and so they're setting about to rediscover, you know, what, what this means I and mean, what, what um, a good illustration of it. I don't know if you read this, Jesse, is um, Sarah Horowitz's uh, book. Uh, Sarah Horowitz, who is the chief speechwriter for, uh, for Michelle Obama, Obama yeah. Yeah, wrote, wrote a book uh, called um, uh, Here All Along, um, where she talks about her um, uh, journey as a young woman back to Judaism um, after kind of growing up in a, you know, typical American uh, suburban Jewish home um, where she was, you know, maybe forced to go to Hebrew school and have a bat mitzvah, but, um, but lived, you know, with parents that, that, you know, couldn't really care all, didn't really care all that much about the, about Jewish community involvement, weren't, weren't particularly spiritually um, attuned or inclined um, and didn't know much about the spiritual insights of Judaism anyway. And so here she is, you know, kind of like uh, um, uh, journeying back to her ancestral tradition. And so I, I saw that kind of mirrored in, in Elsa's journey here in the in, in Frozen 2 of saying, you know, there's 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 something primal that's calling to me. I'm gonna go seek it out and discover about it and about myself in in the process. I think that's spot on, especially when she sings show yourself. Um Right, show yourself. I'm no longer trembling. Here I am. This call of Hineni. I've come so far. You're the answer I've waited for all my life. Show yourself. Let me see who you are. And what does she end up doing? She didn't have any relationship with the North Holdren people 
she ends up in turn staying there. She realizes right, she... that her life is more complete in this enchanted forest among the indigenous people of North Uldra. She's a uh, she's an assimilated Arendellian. And uh, she only once she's there realized what she had been missing her whole life. I think that's a that's a really nice and important connection and a really good point. Now, how do we in synagogues help give people that experience, help bring them back to the synagogue, the synagogue that they were turned off to, the synagogue that their parents were turned off to? It's 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 really. I mean, on some level, that's the question, right? Uh, and uh, and maybe you have the answer to it. Um, I, I'm not sure if I have. The, I'm not sure if I have the answer to it. I think you know part of this for me. You know, so I, I quoted that uh, piece from the Talmud before about the the voice that, according to the rabbinic tradition, calls out from Sinai each and every day. Um, that says, you know, return to me, return to me. So on some level, our tradition thinks that there's a there there. You know, we're we're always being called back home. Um, but the Sloan Marebi, a, a great uh, 20th century uh, Hasidic master, uh, wrote uh, a, a series of, of, of uh, Hasidic commentaries called Netivot Shalom, uh, Reb uh, Noach Shalom, Shalom Noach Berdovsky of Sloan. Uh, he, uh, he says, he asks a great question about that piece of Talmud. He says, um, if the voice is always calling out, why is it that we don't hear it, right? Like, literally, you know, um, I, I mean, if you do hear voices, then you probably are going to be in need of some uh, professional help. Like, we don't actually hear the voice. And is uh, that if we don't actually hear it, then what's the point of it calling out? So he, he, I love how he does this. He always asks these great questions. And, um, and his answer is that the voice is an inner voice, right? The, the Sinai that it's talking about is inside of us, right? It's not actually outside of us. It's, it's, the, it's the stirrings of our heart um, that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that, that are calling us back and calling us home and calling us uh, uh, in, into renewed relationship with the divine. So I think, I think on some level, Jesse, the answer to that question to me is, um, is, is to awaken the heart of people, right? To, to, to help people hear that voice that's calling from within. Um, and there are different ways of doing that for different people. I think that sometimes, sometimes it's, sometimes it's in, it's in learning, uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, um, that, that shows them the, the richness and beauty and depth and insight and wisdom of Jewish tradition. I think that, um, uh, thinking of prayer in a way that, that, that like actually breaks your heart open and, uh, and stirs your soul rather than just being a, um, a, a rote recitation of, um, of, of, of relatively meaningless words and a language that you don't understand set to melodies that you know, may be familiar, but are, but are unmoving. Um, I think that that is a, a piece of it as well. I think that, you know, um, uh, uh, hearing about people's, you know, uh, deepest questions and struggles and challenges and, and, you know, helping them see themselves and those questions in the, uh, in the texts and teachings of tradition. I mean, um, uh, having conversations with people about, uh, uh, about God in a way that, that kind of gets beyond 
um, you know, the the old man in the sky and, and kind of opens up the possibility of of a of a deeper relationship. I think that um that 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 any way that you can that that we can enable people to actually hear those stirrings of their own heart and see that there is um uh, that 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 uh, that their ancestors' tradition um, offers them um, a, a path of, you know, actualizing that voice in the here and now. Um, uh, I, I think is I, I think is the way to go. And I think that the, the that finally, um, this is more Sharon Browse, um, but she's really my Rebbe in this. You know, she says that um, you know that there's really kind of several prevailing trends in in religious life. One is religious extremism. And one is um, uh, religious uh, routinism, uh, and one is religious escapism, right? So that, like, you know, some people use religion as a motivation to hurt other people. And some people say, you know, um, that what religion is is basically, you know, just a series of rote behaviors. And some people say, you know, no, the world is so chaotic and troubled. Like, religion is sanctuary from uh, from from all of the tumult of the world. And she says. That the that 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 really you know um, the antidote what what Judaism calls us to what Torah calls us to is uh, deep engagement with the world. So I think that that's another aspect of this, and this also I think has resonance with the story in Frozen too. That um, uh, that 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 the that the way to the way back to um, to uh, Elsa's uh, ancestral tradition um, is to help her ancestral people, right? And, and uh, uh, Anna um, uh, shows her mettle in, in, in being willing to sacrifice uh, for her sister, right? So, that, so I think that an answer to that question, Jesse, to me is, um, is, is showing contemporary Jews how their, how their tradition uh, demands and propels them uh, to um, engage deeply and meaningfully uh, for the betterment of the world. And I think sometimes we get lost in the bright lights and the loud noises and the big pictures, right? We get mm-hmm. lost in, right, it's it's like Elijah on Horeb, um, or Elijah who, who flees and seeks refuge, and there's fire and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts and earthquakes and the text keeps saying that God is not in any of that but God is in that still small voice God is in the cold the mama daka God is essentially in the silence we only find God when we remove everything else uh, and I think some institutions are very much about let's come up with an alliteration an alliteration for the name of this event and that will make it catchy don't get me wrong i'm all about creating as many entry points as possible for people but sometimes we add so much quote unquote fluff that we're missing the essence and we're missing the koldama madaka and i think these people uh those in our communities those on the periphery of our communities those who are, as you said, like Elsa, who keep hearing that voice and are searching and are searching and are searching, they want that cold mamadaka. They want that still small voice. And sometimes we have to remove those layers, take away the fire and the lightning and the trumpet blast and the earthquake to get to that still small voice. 
And, you know, it also uh, is relevant to mention that, you know, in order to do that, Elsa leaves behind a very comfortable life. You know, so there's, it's, there, there is something, you know, subversive and, and, and dangerous potentially about, um, uh, about following that voice, um, which is possibly why, uh, you know, uh, many people choose not to, right? Many people suppress it, ignore it, uh, um, and then become desensitized to it ultimately, uh, because um, you have to, you know, on some level, you have to be willing to, to make a change uh, in, you know, go into the unknown, uh, in order to, um, in order to get the, you know, spiritual fulfillment and benefit. Now, you know, personally, I think that the, the, you know, um, uh, as, um, as it says in, in Pirkeavot, the Fumsara Agra, right. That, uh, that there's reward that's proportionate to the, uh, to, to the challenge. Uh, but, uh, but nevertheless, you know, uh, people who are, you know, um, relatively comfortable in, in their life, um, are, are, are less willing to, um, to take the risk and make the sacrifice, um, to, to explore, uh, what is, what is yet unknown to them, even if it holds out the promise of being, um, uh, especially meaningful and uplifting. I think there's uh, that's a really good point. But I think most importantly, what we need to remember <laughs> is that, uh, once again, Disney rules the world. <laughs> uh yeah um uh, you know it's it's uh it's it's telling i think jesse that that um that probably i don't know i have to go back and count exactly but something like 50 percent of our conversation so far have, have centered around disney properties and and maybe the other 50 percent have centered around netflix properties uh and um uh you know that's that's uh, an interesting commentary in itself on our society and, uh, and I think it also goes to this point. I mean, you know, it's, it goes to the, you know, kind of routinism and escapism. You know, we, um, uh, we have the capacity. There's so much calling for our attention, right? It happens to be coming from two companies, but there's a lot of content out there, right? And so um, uh, how, do we, how do we cut through the noise and actually hear the voices that are, that are really calling to us to something meaningful? Well, I think uh, Frozen 2 in less than a month has already grossed over $350 million domestically, uh, almost $600 million uh, outside with a worldwide total of almost a billion dollars. I think they've tapped into it. Well, Mike, until next time, bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.